everyone, and welcome to the Grove Church's Cultivate Podcast. I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there at the Grove, and thanks again for joining us. We're starting a new series today. We're just kind of going to go in depth and kind of answering the question, what is the gospel? And so if you are new to faith or really kind of exploring faith, this will be a great series for you to kind of really understand kind of what is at the core of our relationship with God. But for those of you who have been walking with God for a while, this is still, I think, going to be an incredible series for you to kind of process, because I think what happens too often is that we begin to think about our, um, our relationship with God just kind of in the day-to-day, like, what are the things that God wants me to do? How can he help me with this new challenge? What is, you know, what, what does the future hold? How can I be a better parent? How can I be a better spouse? How can I be a better employee? Whatever. And we just kind of think about it kind of in these day-to-day. We think about like, am I, am I doing the right things? And, and if we're not careful, we are going to drift away from really the core element of what our relationship with God is. And we're going to start thinking of our relationship with God really more in a transactional way. I do stuff and he does stuff. And we have that kind of relationship. And it's not that God is not ultimately really concerned in the kind of parent or spouse or employee that we are. He's interested in those things and helping us overcome those challenges. But the core of the relationship and really kind of the core answer really to all of those challenges is a fuller, more deep understanding of the gospel. Because the more we really understand what the gospel is, the implications that it has for my life, the the, the more and, and better that the answers that God is giving to us in the day-to-day of our life makes sense. It's like, and it, and it can keep us, it keeps us rooted in our connection to him, the better we understand the gospel. And again, it just keeps us from drifting into a perspective that says that my relationship with God hinges, it depends on, um, on what I do. And so we're going to spend three weeks on this. And I was thinking about this because I was thinking about this old uh, kind of tract, this old religious pamphlet that Campus Crusade put out that is really, really good and was, and was kind of the primary way people were sharing the gospel there for a long time. And it's called the Four Spiritual Laws. And I remember being in the summer we were in Ukraine in the summer of 1995, having a essentially a Russian-English version of that and going around and talking to um, Ukrainian students and walking through this. And it was really, really good. And so on the one hand, um, I'm basing this on this, like, but bro, how can it be based on the Four Spiritual Laws if you're doing it three weeks? Well, we're going to kind of combine three and four, but really... What this is going to help us with, as you think about it, we break it down into these three principles. It really is going to help us understand kind of in our own lives and in the lives of people that we're interacting with. Somewhere along the way, along these three kind of key principles in understanding the gospel is when people get their off ramp. Like I can't, I maybe, maybe I, I believe the first thing, but once you say the second thing, I can't buy that. I'm with you on one and two, but I'm not so clear on number three. And the first one that we're going to talk about is really just kind of the overwhelming love of God and the love that God has for us. And you might think, well, bro, no one's going to take the off-ramp in number one. No one's going to say, well, I don't think that God loves me. And I might would have said that, but I, I mean, but that summer in Ukraine um, in the summer of 1995 radically changed that. We're talking to this group of people that have just very recently come out from under the USSR and are just kind of adjusting to life. And a very, it was a very atheistic culture under the USSR, under the Soviet Union. And there was a lot of that. 
and even the people who maintained some sort of faith, they just had this perspective that God had abandoned them. It's not that they didn't believe in God. It was very difficult for them to believe that God actually loved them. So when we, every time I was talking to Americans, like, hey, God, I say, God loves you. He's like, of course he does. I'm me, right? And then you get to, we start talking about sin. And that's when you start having the deeper conversations about what sin is and its consequences, which will be part two. Um, but there in Ukraine, like this was really important. And I think the more we talk about this, that God loves you, I think you're going to realize that maybe there's a sense in which that you have not fully understood it as well. So we'll start there and then we'll talk about the sin and consequences of sin. And then what Jesus' death on the cross, what, what that does, what does it mean when we say Jesus died for our sins? So that's kind of a little roadmap for where we're going to be over these next three episodes. And so when I say that God loves you, you probably have some particular image in mind. But if we even just start with the first word of that, and I say God, most of us, when we think about who God is, and I'm not just saying visually, not old man in a beard with a lightning bolt standing in a cloud, but that may be what you visualize. But like, what is God like? I think most of us lean on a lot of the imagery in the Old Testament around God being a king, around God being a Lord. We think of, we think of power, we think of ruler. And it's really interesting, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. When Moses was being sent by God to go to Pharaoh, Moses looks back at God and is like, who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? And this is important because the Egyptians had many gods, 10 kind of key ones, which interesting, interesting little side note, the 10 plagues kind of corresponded to God showing his dominance over what each of these 10 supposed Egyptian gods thought they ruled over. Anyways, so they had these different gods over different things and they had different names. And so Moses is like, well, who am I supposed to say you are? And it is really interesting what he said. And he did not say, I'm Jimmy, the God of shepherds, right? He didn't give really give a name or a title in that sense. What he said to Moses was, you tell him I am sent you. It's where we get Yahweh. It's where we get Jehovah. But it's just Hebrew. Basically, you say, you tell him I am. And so if they ask you, so it's like, it's really interesting and also not particularly helpful. It's like you go to Pharaoh. It's like, what God sends you? He says, I am sent me. Basically, what God is saying is you tell him the, I'm the one. You tell him the, like the one, the, the, it's me, right? I mean, it's a bit of a, not a bit, it's actually quite a bit of a flex of just really just kind of describing himself in this way. And so that's who he is, okay? And if we were to say, what do you think God's name is? Most of us would say God. And God really is just a word, uh, you know, that's it's our English word, but there's Greek words, Hebrew words, whatever. Theos, the Greek word. El, kind of your primary um, uh, Hebrew word to describe God, which we mean kind of a supernatural being that kind of sits at least a level above people, right? So we talk about lower G gods that people think exist, and we talk about God. But then you look at the, a lot of the imagery in the Old Testament. He was kind of like the tribal leader of the Israelites. He was kind of their, he was kind of their God. He was their king. He was their ruler. When, when, the, when the Israelites said they wanted a king, it's like, you don't need a king. I'm your king. So there's a lot of king imagery, a lot of Lord imagery, a lot of ruler. And so, you know, in the Old Testament, we have these laws. And so the, the, the leader, the ruler, the king, he sets the rules, he sets the terms. And all of those things are very legitimate descriptors of how God is. This is how God is describing himself. It's not the only way, but it's how God describes himself. 
And I think too often our perspective about who God is limited by that. Because if I say God is a king and God is a ruler and God loves you, kings, rulers, lords really aren't known for love. Now, a few times in the Old Testament, but obviously a lot more in the New Testament, the the primary image that God uses to describe himself moves past ruler, king, lord imagery and more into what we're more familiar with, which is father imagery, God as father, God as your, as your dad. And so I think, you know, in an ideal situation that we have a really good idea, it's like, okay, I know what it means for a father to love me. Implied in father, and certainly in that culture, implied in father is still some of those, some of those same ideas. The authority, the one who sets the rules, the one who determines the terms of the relationship in a lot of way and kind of what the expectations are, authority, those kinds of things. But more so than in king and lord and ruler imagery, we see the, uh, a desire for relationship. We see love. We see intimacy. And so that is the way that Jesus referred to, to God. And it is also how he encouraged us to refer to him. When he, when, when he says to his disciples, hey, here's how you should pray, it starts with our father, right? And so pushing us more towards this family dad relationship with God. And so as Jesus is describing kind of what God is like, we see a lot more of that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, because if there is anybody who can describe to us what the type of relationship that God has with us, wants with us, can help us understand and describe, let me tell you how God feels about you. Um, It's Jesus. I mean, Jesus is God, and Jesus has this relationship with the Father, and this is why he came. He came to show us the Father. He came to describe him to us. He came to kind of paint this picture of what a relationship could and should look like. This This is what he was here to do. And so in Luke chapter 15, we've got a series of three parables that go. Jesus goes back to back to back on to kind of describe really how God feels about us. And in the process of describing how he feels about us, what he's doing is he's also kind of correcting this idea that the Pharisees, these religious teachers of the time, they had about God and the way the relationships work. They believed that they had a better relationship with God because they did more of the right things. They followed more of the laws. They were more strict in following the rules. And then the bad people, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those kinds of people, they, they were not loved as much by God because they did not follow the rules as well. And so in, in order to describe and kind of to counter that and to kind of describe really how God feels about us, he uses these three parables. Luke chapter 15, we'll start in verse three. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And so he describes us there as a sheep that has gone away. We we have strayed away in some way. And the love and the desire of this shepherd is like, I've got to go get that sheep. And, and the way that he tells the story, you don't think of it in terms of like, well, man, this is kind of how I make my livelihood. This is, this is really important to me functionally. It's like, 
He puts it on his shoulder. He rejoices. I found my lamb. And he goes and tells his neighbor, you will not believe I had a lost sheep and now I have it back. I mean, it's like, you're like, okay, but whatever. Like, no, I mean, like, this is something to celebrate. Like there's just a, a love that this shepherd has for this sheep. And then he continues the parable of the lost coin. Verse eight, or suppose a woman has 10 coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully till she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin in the same way. I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So again, just this, this joy that I will, I will stop whatever I am doing because this really matters to me. And again, now we're talking about, we're still talking about property, right? We're talking about the shepherd who has the sheep. We're talking about a person and a coin, right? But still you get these hints, these glimmer of there is a love relationship between this person and the coin, between this person and the sheep. And just to drive the point home, we move off that entirely and get to one of the most famous parables there are, which is the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. Um, A lot of you may be familiar with this. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Okay, let's just pause here for a second in the story. This is one of the most reprehensible things that you could possibly imagine. We blast, we go past it because we're trying to get to the point of the story. But the setup of this story is actually fairly, it's awful. Essentially, what he's saying is, hey, dad, I've been sitting around waiting for you to die and it seems like you won't die. Can we just go ahead and pretend like you're dead and I get my inheritance now because I'm tired of you being my dad. Like that, that's the premise. Like, I'm tired of you being my dad. I want to be off on my own. Can we pretend that you're dead? Give me my stuff. And it's, that is, can only be considered absolutely heartbreaking. And an original listener to this would have just been blown away by that level of disrespect. That's the setup here. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. And so, again, the story continues. Um, We got this son. I wish you were dead. Now I'm going to get as far away from you as possible, and I'm going to live a life the complete opposite of your values, right? And so this is the setup here. And so we would imagine a king, a lord, a ruler would be pretty angry at this point and would just have written this person off. But Jesus has been setting us up with this, with the parable of the coin and the parable of the lost sheep. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Pigs were considered the grossest of all the animals. You may agree, but in Jewish culture, they were even grubby. You could not eat them. You should not. You shouldn't touch them. You shouldn't be around them. He's feeding them, right? That's his job, to feed the most repulsive, dirty, unclean. Like This was, this was bad. This is as bad as bad can get. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. So he got up and went to his father. And so here's the rationale this guy saying. He's like, I have, I basically told him I didn't want to be his son anymore. I don't want to be your son anymore. I don't want to share your values. I want to be done with you. And so he leaves. And when he kind of gets to the end of himself, he's like, I can't just go back to be his son. I kind of renounced him really as dad, but maybe just maybe he's a good hearted guy. Maybe he'll let me at least live like one of his servants. Maybe I can 
get back to a a servant master king peasant kind of relationship with him. Well, at least then I can be cared for. But I know that he doesn't love me like a son. I've done too much to be loved like a son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And again, there's some there's some elements to this that I think that are really, really important. I mean, so you get the impression if he was a long way off and he saw him, that that the dad was looking in that direction. He was looking at the road at which the, at which the son had left. He was not looking towards his house. He wasn't looking towards his fields. He was looking away from all the things that he had. Again, just like the shepherd, just like the woman with the coin, he's not particularly concerned with the things that he has. He is obsessed with the thing that he doesn't have, the one that he doesn't have. Where is my son? Maybe my son will come. He's, he's looking to where he's looking for him and finds him at a big distance. And it says, that he took off and ran after him. He was filled with compassion and he ran to him, threw his arms around him, kissed him. Very undignified. That would have been considered very undignified for a patriarch at that time. But he threw dignity out of the window and he says, I love my son. My son is back. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So the intimacy of this picture, of this story that Jesus is using to describe the love that this father has for a son, this image that in his, this is how God loves me. He loves me with a passionate love. With, it, with, with the relationship of this unconditional love that comes from this dad, that no matter what this son had done, no matter what he had said, no matter how bad things were gotten, this, this dad loved him, celebrated with him, embraced him, ran to him, kissed him. I love you. My son is back. That is not the way that a king deals with a re- someone who rebels. It's not what a Lord does to a traitor. It's not what you do to a runaway servant. It is, it is not the same. His relationship with his son was not transactional. When you do good, I love you. When you don't do good, I don't love you. His love for his son was absolutely unconditional. And in fact, it seems like the love multiplied the worse the son got. The worse the son got, the more full of compassion and love and fear and hope that this dad had. Like, I hope he comes back. I think he might be dead. He's living, he's living a way that can only destroy himself. I hope he comes to his senses. I hope I get to see him again. I hope I get to love him. I hope I can just put my arms around him one more time. That kind of just overwhelming love from this father to his son. And, and, and the Bible describes, and Paul talks about this, it's like that, that what happens when, when, when we fully understand all aspects of the gospel, it says that God makes us, his adopted sons and daughters, where we get to call him dad. And like, we, he, he loves us like this. And I think it is really important. So we started this whole thing by me saying, hey, um, God loves us. And your response was, hey, yeah, sure. Of course, of course. That's kind of a given, right? But do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the God of universe is like a dad who loves his son so much? that no matter what he did, he would always want to be in relationship with him. 
to love him, to bring him back, to be a part of his family. The kind of dad that, that, that would cry, the kind of dad that would hug, the kind of dad that would come running to you, the kind of dad that would throw a party to celebrate your life when you were at your lowest moment. Do you think of the love of God that way? Or again, is it more transactional? A king loves his people. He wants to take care of them. Maybe he is a good caretaker. Maybe he is a, a nice Lord who care, he, he cares, right? God cares about me. He's interested in me. Maybe we can get there. But this sort of passionate, deep relational love that this father has for his son, do you believe that that is how God views you? And honestly, this is just a story. This is a story that Jesus told, a story to illustrate in part the love of God. And so we're supposed to connect with like, the most loving earthly father we can imagine, one that just kind of is like just goes above and beyond anything that makes sense to him. But it's like the most loving human father we can imagine. That's what God is like. And it's like, well, okay, that's what he's like. But that's not exactly it. That's not going to be exactly a, a descriptor of God because God is more than the ideal dad. He's not the perfect human. His perspective is not of a perfect... His love is like the best type of love that a human can show to another human. His love is on a scale even beyond that. So no matter how much you think, wow, I think like no matter how deep you allow yourself to think, like that's how much God loves me. He loves on a level that we can't even connect with to the point to where it is very described very often throughout the scripture. God is love. It, 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 is, it is him. Not God is loving. Not God has love. He is love. What love is, is God. And what, I mean, that's what it is. It is, is a, an essential part of who God is. And so no matter how much you can allow your brain to imagine, I bet, I wonder if God even loves me this much, this much. It is infinitely more than that because love is, is who he is. And so just think about the person in your life that you love the most. Or think about the person in your life that has loved you the most. And that just begins to be a, a fraction of the love that God the Father has for each of us. And so I think it is really important for us, if we're going to really understand the, the basics and the core of the gospel, it's important for us to move beyond a just simply a master-follower relationship with God, a king and subject, a master and servant. Again, all of those things are part of it. We have to understand that when God sets the rules, if he says that we do it because he's the one that's in charge, we have to understand that. But I think it is of critical importance. I think it is of critical importance that we move beyond that, that that is just one piece of what a relationship with God is and make sure that we fully and truly and deeply understand how much God loves us. So that's where the gospel begins. There, there is a God out there. There's, God is not distant. God is not out there somewhere. God is not a disinterested creator who is too big and too large to notice or care. He's not a God who cares in general about his creation. He's not a God who cares about people and uh, people as a group or a particular group of people. He is, he is a father who loves individually each and every one of us. And not just God loves people, not just God loves us. Let me he hear me say this. God loves you. 
in a deeper, more passionate way than our brains are even capable of understanding. So this is where the gospel begins. So we kind of start with kind of the ideal scenario here. And again, we're going to spend some time talking about sin because it's like, this is true, but something bad has happened. Just like any, like you're watching any movie, you're watching any story, any good TV show, you kind of get the setup. Hey, here's what's going on in this world. And then something bad happens and it gets resolved. That's the three parts that we're doing. This is a setup as the God, the creator God of the universe absolutely loves you. That's the setup. And then we'll spend some time next time talking about what goes wrong. And then we'll finish it up with what Jesus does to kind of bring restoration and healing to that. So I encourage you to keep joining us for the next couple of sessions, next couple of weeks, as we kind of are working our way through this series, kind of with a deep dive into really understanding what the gospel is. I hope you will keep coming back. And if you are in Northwest Arkansas, not a part of the Grove, we'd love to see you. We, you can find us at thegrovechurch.org slash connect. You let us know you're coming. We'd love to see you on a Sunday morning. Everything about what we're doing is go, you can find it there, our services, where we're located, and we'd love to see you. If you're not around here, you can join us online. We'd still love to know that you're listening, you're a part of this. Go to that same website, grovechurch.org slash connect. And we would love to help you and serve you any way that we can. And again, I'm Charlie, the lead pastor at The Grove, and thanks for joining us.